Welcome to ASCP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's pathologists and laboratory professionals. I'm Dr. Allie Brown. I'm the Chief Officer for Medical Quality at ASCP and one of your hosts. Hey, everybody. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified clinical laboratory scientist and the executive editor of journals at ASCP. In medicine, we are taught to recognize hoofbeats as horses rather than zebras. But what happens when the diagnoses actually are zebras? Today, we're talking with Dr. Cesar Moran about interesting surgical pathology cases that he's encountered in his extensive career and the potential pitfalls surrounding them. Hey, Dr. Moran, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ali. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, both of you, Kelly. And as you know, I've been working at MD Anderson for the last 22 years almost now. Previously, I was at the AFIP for 10 years. So I've been doing this for quite some time now. So, And I think I would be remiss not to mention that you're one of my mentors. I trained at MD Anderson as a fellow. And when Kelly and I, actually Kelly's idea to start doing a series talking about diagnostic zebras, Kelly as a specialist in microbiology, she was thinking about it from a perspective of a microbiologist. It immediately made me think of you and your unknown conferences that you would give us as fellows and how well those conferences I felt prepared me and and my fellow fellows for encountering very challenging cases, which happens pretty much every day if you're doing a considerable volume of surgical pathology. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Before we get started on the discussion, I just have a few little housekeeping items to take care of. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commiserate with the extent of their participation in the activity. And we also have a house ad today in our podcast. As we move into 2023, ASCP is looking to the next 100 years and envisioning how ASCP members will shape the next century of pathology and laboratory medicine. How you connect with colleagues through ASCP will bring forth new technologies and processes to improve diagnostic medicine. With voices raised as one, you will increase the visibility of the lab you will be the ones to create a laboratory that represents the diverse world it serves and help to find the solutions that will establish a pathway for continued and future success of the laboratory. Visit www.ascp.org membership to join ASCP and to be part of the evolution of pathology and laboratory medicine. All right, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can get started with our discussion. You know, I talked about before, If you're doing any considerable volume in in surgical pathology, whether you're doing a specialized, some sort of subspecialty or general surgical pathology, you are bound to come across cases on a daily basis that just say, oh, why couldn't that be a tubular adenoma? Or why can't this be an, an easy one? You know, something that maybe you want to put aside for later or something that you need to walk down the hall to a colleague and get their, their opinion of. And I think it's really important to think about how we approach those cases and to understand what you know, even in, in what you don't know, which is sometimes even harder. So Dr. Moran, when looking at challenging cases, what is it that makes a challenging case difficult? Well, Ali, this, this question can be probably, probably there are several answers for that question. One is that sometimes we think that a challenging case is the one in we do not automatically recognize the pattern and recognize the diagnosis. I, on the other hand, probably see this in a different way. A challenging case often is the one in which the tissue is so limited, and yet you still have to make a have to pronounce a diagnostic line or a, a, that will be used for very specific treatment. So when I think about challenging cases, I basically separate them in two. One, I have a very small biopsy, and that biopsy interpretation is going to be used either for a very radical procedure or for chemotherapy. 
And there is no way back. Once I write that diagnosis and once I finalize the case, the, the other type of challenging case in which you have a reasonable chunk of tissue and yet you don't recognize the, the tumor for whatever reason, the pattern is not there, you have never seen the case, or probably you, you have an inkling about the case, you say, well, this pattern is, I have seen it in that particular tumor, but I have never seen it in this particular anatomical location. So I think that if we view challenging case in that way, then we will probably manage the case different. Also, let me add that often we also think that the challenging case, quote-unquote challenging case, is the one that, okay, whatever we say, we will find, we will put it in a specific category. What I have found throughout years is the cases that we think that are not challenging are the cases that raise all sort of questions later on. A few weeks after you have finalized the case, two, three weeks, there are all sorts of questions for a case that you, me, anyone, quote-unquote, thought it was an easy case. The challenging cases manage somehow differently because there are a lot of people involved in the pathologist didn't make a specific diagnosis. So there are more things that are going to be done to that small fragment of tissue or the patient is going to be evaluated differently. But, but I think if we really go back to the question, what is what makes a case challenge? I think is the one, if, if I had to provide a definition, is the one that we feel uncomfortable with it whether it's a small fragment of tissue or a large fragment of tissue, we are unable to recognize the pattern, unable to put a specific name using all the ancillary tools that we have available today. So that makes a case challenging simply because we cannot make a definitive diagnosis on that particular fragment of tissue. And that's sometimes one of the hardest things that we do, right? Saying that maybe there's not enough or that we can't make the call. There's a a drive to make a decision and to call something something, right? We don't want to be wishy-washy or... Correct. I think that also the expectations, okay? The expectations are, as I see them these days, the expectations from the medical oncology group or from the surgeons is that they we give you the fragment of tissue. Now we expect that you are going to give us a diagnosis. So I always tease and play words with that assessment because I always tell them, I can give you a diagnosis. I don't know if it is the diagnosis, but I can give you a diagnosis on, on what I have. So, but the expectations are different these days. And one thing I have noticed is that the tissues have become smaller. The procedure that are used, probably the needles to get core biopsies, are better or skinnier, I am not sure, but the tissue has become smaller and the expectations are exponentially higher these days to, to make a definitive diagnosis. And that makes a challenge right, right from the start. But I think it's our expectations also, personal expectations. Mainly when you have already, you are being identified as the person who can provide answers then the expectations are, okay, we'll give you a tissue and Dr. Ali Brown is going to give me the answer for that particular tissue. And that places you in a very lonely position at the same time because now it is you who, who has to come up with the answer. So our expectations and to meet the expectations of our colleagues in oncology or in surgery. And, and I think that is that is a burden that only you know when you are at you know, a practice in surgical pathologies and in, in trying to make sense of cases that are complicated. The volume of tissue issue, not to make a rhyme, <laughs> but is part- particularly pertinent in your field in thoracic pathology. I feel like lung biopsies are with these very fine gauge needles. There, there are probably more molecular markers that are expected, you know, to triage these these lesions if if you even get can get to the diagnosis. We used to have this luxury of and I remember signing out with you, you know, and you would say, "Oh, 
Well, I mean, if it's small cell, you don't even have to do all these markers. If you have a positive keratin, that's what you do. But even just to diagnose a small cell carcinoma, people would get, you know, three immunostains just for neuroendocrine differentiation and things like that. Things have changed a lot in, in, in particular. Fact, you are correct. Now, you have raised an, an interesting point there. For some of us who do thoracic, it gets a little bit more complicated because there is another anatomical area there, mediastinum. And, and just let me quote what Dr. Juan Rosai used to say, mediastinum is Pandora's box because anything happened there. Yes, the default diagnosis is thymoma. In all the cases, anterior mediastinal mass is a thymoma by default. But, but that's not the case. And then you have to be aware of all the different possibilities there. And that in itself is a challenging anatomical area to work with because anything from non-neoplastic, infectious, all the different lineages of malignancies can be seen in the mediastinum. So it is almost like practicing general surgical pathology in a limited area. So thorax is complicated because also a lot of metastatic disease to the thorax. And so now you have to separate what's primary, what's metastatic, and that brings all sort of different issues and problems in the assessment of those biopsies. So I guess I want to ask you, like, how you approach a challenging case. Is it more of an algorithm or a flowchart? You know, if A, then B, and if B, then C, or is it more of an intuition thing just because you have you have over two decades of experience, you kind of know what direction to head in? Like, how how do you go about that? Well, let me, for instance, give you an example. A, a challenging case, you can probably provide answers to some of it without seeing the material. And I'll give you a scenario. I have a, a, a clinical history given to me of a 28-year-old lady who has an, an autoimmune disease and has been diagnosed with Sjogren's and now has a cystic anterior mediastinal mass. They get the biopsy, and I get the biopsy and say, I cannot make a diagnosis here, but I know what most likely the diagnosis is going to be, but I cannot prove it here. By the, without seeing the glass slides, without seeing the material, I can tell you the most likely diagnosis is going to be a mold lymphoma, okay? So it's a kind of low-grade lymphoma, and I know that the biopsy is not going to be diagnostic because most of the time we need surgical resection in those cases. So that in itself is, becomes complicated because now for in, in general practice, the clinician will expect that they give me a biopsy and I should make that diagnosis of lymphoma, but not in that case. Those cases are complicated because the material that is obtained most of the time is not diagnostic material. And if we know, I am not sure if they know, but it becomes complicated. <laughs> the other issue is when you have cases in which you get a biopsy, but the case you have seen some of these cases in other locations, but the case has never been described in the location in which they are giving you the biopsy. Even though you know the diagnosis, you say, I have seen this case in other locations. Now you know that you're going to have a problem with the explanation that now this is a primary tumor. And I'll give you an example of it. Years ago, many years ago, in, in a trip to Turkey, I was shown a case that was a clear cell neoplasm of the kidney, or looked like clear cell neoplasm. And I say, well, it looks like a conventional clear cell carcinoma. Well, it turned out to be that it was negative for everything. All the immunohistochemistry, epithelial markers, and all that stuff, negative. Later on, the diagnosis that was offered for that case was an entity that is very unusual. It's called hemangioblastoma-like clear cell of the kidney. So hemangioblastomas, you know, occur somewhere else, more commonly in the CNS. So a few of these cases, but now I had them in the lung. And then I said, well, these cases look like somebody showed me a case in the kidney before. So basically what I did was to collect those cases and with at that time a few years ago with, with a, one of the young fellows who was here with us, we published a series of cases with the same title. But it took some time to actually gather the cases and make sense of it. 
And that is a complicated situation because you have seen the tumor elsewhere. And now you have seen it in, in another location. Of course, in the lung, we have to ask, well, can you give me more history? Is there any pertinent or important history of tumor elsewhere? And then, you know, as the clinical history unfolds, we know that this, there is no such a thing. So we assume that this is a primary neoplasm. So basically what I'm trying to say is that often it takes time to come up with those explanations. Often it takes a little bit of spending a lot of time and energy making sure that one is not going to miss a more common neoplasm of the or of the possibility that the clinical history is incomplete and the patient has tumor elsewhere. And now we have to separate the primary from metastatic disease. So that in itself makes these cases complicated. If we look at thorax, if we take thorax, for example, as an example, we know that the vast majority of cases in the, in the lung are going to be non-small cell carcinomas, okay? So a biopsy taken from the lung mass from an adult individual, you know, 40s, 50s, or, or, or more than that, I think most likely it is going to be in that category, adenocarcinoma and a small cell carcinoma. Small percentage would be of the neuroendocrine neoplasm. Once you get out of that area, you are in a challenging case because everything is going to be unusual. And now you, if you add plural, by default, every plural thickening is mesothelioma. Now you have, if you encounter something different, is going to be challenging. So basically what removing the common entities in the thorax and assuming that they are primary, if you remove the most common entities, you are with a challenging case because now you're talking about minority. You're talking somewhere around 5 10% of cases. And of those 5 10% of the cases, you can even break them down into unusual, very unusual, and highly highly unusual. And now it becomes now, if in addition to that, you, you get a tiny biopsy, a couple millimeters biopsy, now, now we have to face some realities. And the reality are likely that one is not able to make a definitive diagnosis on that tiny biopsy. So those scenarios make for a complicated, a challenging case too. Those are the cases where, like, uh, I put it back in the folder, and I hope later uh, I'll look at it after a couple of other cases, and maybe I'll be inspired. You know, exactly, or, or probably collect them, and after probably a couple of years or or more, you see more of the same, and you say, oh, they represent a different entity, or they represent something that I have not seen before, and then it is worth writing or investigating. Now we have more tools. We have you know, a lot of ample immunohistochemistry, and we also have molecular techniques that we can use to try to satisfy our own biases, whether it is a new entity or something that is just a spin from an unusual tumor. I think you saying that, that by the majority of pathologists that will listen to this podcast are, you know, non-academic pathologists, general surgical pathologists, etc. And the thought of describing a new entity or keeping cases aside to look for patterns that you might see it again might sound kind of foreign. You know, if you're somewhere like MD Anderson signing out with someone like you or just had, you know, some sort of experience in the past where you saw these sorts of things happening, that's different. But for a lot of people, that's not even conceptual. They're signing out cases and they really look to experts and probably couldn't even, you know, because for, for me, you know, like once I kind of left the MD Anderson realm outside of my own specialty, it's sort of abstract to think about, oh, well, maybe this is like a new entity. You just immediately think, no, I don't know what this is. I need some help. I, I, I need to ask an expert. Exactly. But, but that's probably, we live in, a, in two different worlds because if you are in the community, then yeah, those patients need to be treated. The oncologist, the surgeon, they, they need an answer. And when you see the case, probably the easiest, the one exit is to say, 
I am not sure. I don't know what this is. And I'm going to send it to these big institutions where people see a lot more of it. They are more so specialized. And you hope that someone has seen that. When we are in the receiving end, like institutions like MD Anderson, in which it is completely sub-specialized, then you have the luxury to put aside those cases that are unusual. And then hopefully you will get more, you know, a handful or half a dozen of very unusual things, and then you can study them at length. And then you will come with, with some sort of an answer, whether that is an, a new entity or a spin or of another entity is is it will be up to your interpretation. But we have, I think those of us who are in academic medicine, we have the luxury to pause a little bit and to collect cases and to later on take a little bit time and correlate them with the clinical information, with the imaging or with whatever resection or molecular studies have been done on that patient. So that is a luxury that probably in the community people don't have. People are more pressed to come up with answers and quickly. Then this is why those cases are sent to the different institutions where you have all these more super specialized individuals. But that is a luxury, I, I think. I don't blame anyone. And sometimes you feel if you were in the shoes of that pathologist, you probably would be doing the same thing. I have placed myself there and said, yeah, if I had this situation, yeah, I would send it somewhere else, people who have seen these cases. Not to say, I don't want to say that we have the answers for everything either, okay? Many times, the pathologist who originally saw the case, his or her interpretation is just as good as from these very sort of specialized individuals. So, yeah, often that is the case. You know, there are specific cases that you know. You have seen the case and you say, you know, this is an entity that is rare and that's the name. But very often there are cases in which there is no specific answer from the consulting pathologist and from the specialty pathologist. And then there's the whole, how things are changing you know, over the years, you know, pathologists are getting replaced by everything, right? We were going to get replaced by the electron microscope and then by immunohistochemistry. And now we're getting replaced by molecular. Kelly, I know you've seen it in your area. Microbiology has changed tremendously. Right. Um, like automation, automation is going to get rid of you. And guess what? It never does. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I kind of agree with both of you historically and probably before both of you were born. <laughs> we have electron microscopy, okay? But before electron microscopy, there were histochemical stains. You have musicarmin, PAS, DPS, and they were very commonly. I mean, I still use some of those stains today. So it's not that they went away completely. But then came the issue of electron microscopy. And then a lot of tumors were evaluated that way. But we never, or, or at least, the majority of us did not master electron microscopy. We did not master ultrastructural studies. And then we moved very quickly to immunohistochemistry. Immunohistochemistry, we saw the beginning, but we haven't seen the end. And there are so many antibodies available. And sometimes what worries me is that we are viewing this only from our own subspecialty. And we evaluate antibodies that are specific or uh, very good results in a particular organ system. But when we try an organ system, we start finding out that are not that great for diagnosis. And as we are moving in immunohistochemistry, now we are getting into molecular studies and all the molecular signature of different tumors. But it seems to me that we are not mastering all these ancillary tools that well. And I am probably afraid that as we move into molecular, eventually molecular is going to become as probably as common as we do now immunohistochemistry. That's the way it is going to go because need and because probably people want answers for, for whatever they, they need to treat. 
But eventually we are going to move to something else. I'm not sure what that something else is going to be. But I think eventually, because that, that's how we advance in, in medicine, more specifically in pathology. I mean, I have seen since my era of resident, the beginning of immunohistochemistry, and that was only intermediate filaments, basically seven immunohistochemical stains. Now there are like about 700 immunohistochemical. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there are so many. But that shows you that how we are growing. And molecular is very much the, the same way. As we learn and we do more, we are going to find more, more answers, but we are also going to find that it is, there are some limitations to it. Since I am very, I, I am, I'm trying to be very positive about it, the whole thing, I always advise people not to throw away the microscope yet. I think a good pair of eyes, a good trained pair of eyes can tell just as much as we know with immunohistochemistry or molecular. Still, that diagnosis is highly important to do molecular studies. If the h &E diagnosis is incorrect, likely the results are going to be faulty to some extent. So not, not to get despair with the, with the light microscopy, I, I believe that we still have a job to do and, and we should do it well. I, I believe that that's another thing that we have not mastered yet, the morphology of tumors. Okay? And we still have a lot to learn from there. So, so I, I think that there is ample opportunity in pathology to do both, to do a lot of the ancillary studies that we have molecular and to be a good morphologist, an excellent surgical pathologist, diagnostic surgical pathologist. I, I, I believe that there is room for, still, we have room to, to grow in both of those. Yeah, they complement each other, right? Yeah, that's right. And I know how much you love morphology and the study of surgical pathology. So I'm glad you're saying that. And I, I agree. I would say the same thing. I'm not throwing away my microscope. Yeah, I have no, one on my not desk. yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I'm never going to throw it away. Not going to throw it away. So can we talk about some specific cases? And they can be thoracic cases. You know, anyone that signed out with you or would go to your unknown conferences knows that though you are a thoracic pathologist and probably because so many things occur in the thorax, and even more specifically, your love of the thymoma, which we could talk about, you know, just a podcast on why you love the thymoma. You know, you really are a general surgical pathologist at, at heart. I think you would agree and really enjoy looking at, at, at all sorts of cases. Are there cases that, that stick out in your mind, challenging cases, either because of lack of tissue or because the, the diagnosis itself is rare, et cetera? What, what are some, some pearls that you can give us, some cases that stand out to you? I think that there have been a, a few instances, cases that are anecdotal cases that at one time I used them to write a specific series of cases or to illustrate lectures or, or something like that. For instance, I re recall once a, a consultation, and that was years, many years ago, still when I was at the AFIP, and, and, and it taught me different lessons. The, 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 there was a, a small biopsy. Not that small. It was a reasonable biopsy, I should say. But it was from the pleura. And it was probably a young woman, probably somewhere in early 40s or late 30s, or somewhere in there. The biopsy was interpreted originally as mesothelioma. And, and obviously, for those cases, you know, you always go and get another opinion from another group. And then it was sent out, and the different diagnosis was adenocarcinoma. So it's still two malignant diagnosis. And then those, are, those were the cases that would come to AFIP, and, and you dreaded those cases because they were seen by, you know, some of those cases were very good pathologists and famous pathologists. And then you have to agree with one of them, but the worst is when you disagree with everyone. So the, the case was seen by a third pathologist elsewhere. And the third pathologist make a very interesting diagnosis. 
not adenocarcinoma, not mesothelioma, but maybe diagnosis of pleuropulmonary blastoma. So one thing, two, there are two lessons there. And, and, and of course, all sort of immunohistochemistry was, was performed. The two lessons there that I learned was if one wants to make a fancy diagnosis, like a pleuropulmonary blastoma, one has to be very careful and, and probably look at the literature if one is not very familiar with that to know that pleuropulmonary blastomas degrade probably 90% or more, 95, 98% are in children under three years of age. And I believe that the oldest patient that has been diagnosed is probably 15 years old. So to make a diagnosis in an adult of pleuropulmonary blastoma is, one has to be very careful. Again, perhaps it happens. I have never seen a case and I have not read of a case today in an adult, but that diagnosis was offered. So that's one lesson. The second is that to base diagnosis on pure immunohistochemistry because you have antibodies that are used and then you have positive or negative without looking more carefully at the morphology is a trap because normal tissues, antibodies do not recognize normal or abnormal tissue. They just react. So to cut this story short, at looking at all of these and all the immunohistochemistry that was done, then you looked at, well, it was a little inflamed. There were a lot of plasma cells. There was some glandular proliferation. But then said, well, in this case, probably immunohistochemistry was not needed because it was a case of pleuropulmonary endometriosis. It's not common. Endometriosis in the plural is not common, but the small body biopsy was taken Again, the default diagnosis are adenocarcinoma or mesothelioma in the plura. And you use antibodies that are specific for those lesions, and then you aromatically think it has to be one of those tumors because of epithelial glandular proliferation. And there is a little bit of a stroma. But in reality, if you look and pay attention to the morphology, you probably would have come to the same conclusion and said, well, no immunohistochemistry is needed. This can be recognized because it recapitulates the proliferative endometrium in, in, in a woman. And that was the case. So it probably learned that, yes, immunohistochemistry is good, but it has great limitations in the way that we interpret that, that immunohistochemistry. So I have always remembered that case since then. I have seen several cases that have been, again, interpreted differently and it is because normal tissues in unusual locations are, are not that, mainly in the thorax. To have endometrium in the pleura or even in the lung is, is highly unusual. And sometimes you can have only decidua, which makes it even more challenging. So that is something that I have learned. More recently, a pathologist shared a case with me and this is when you have written something and people send you cases thinking, okay, I have seen this case and you wrote about this case and I just want to show you an example of what you have written. Again, I, I think the same lady fellow who was here, Kaylee Lindholm, who is now a pathologist in, in, in Colorado, she and I have written a, a paper on thymomas that we call with the histiocyte proliferation and everything. So someone sent me that, an example of what I, what she and I have done. When I look at the case, I said, I wrote back and said, well, you know, it was not a consult. It was just someone trying to illustrate the, that case. And I wrote back and said, you know, listen, very nice that you are sharing this case with me, but I don't think that this is a thymoma. I think that this is Rosai Dorfman disease of the thymus which when we look at those cases, there are very few reported in the literature. But once again, anterior mediastinum, the default diagnosis is thymoma. And yes, and you have a lot of lymphocytes, you have unusual histiocytic proliferation, and it was diagnosed as a thymoma. These are cases that probably, you can look at these cases in two ways. One is that because of the location, people, 
the, actually in both cases, you can see because of the location, people already have a default diagnosis. And it is very difficult to think about other possibilities, mainly when those, those possibilities may be very unusual, which brings probably a question that probably may be in your mind or you may want to ask a question. I was told once this, what is the difference between the skillful pathologist and the not so skillful pathologist? And probably some people put it in a different way. People say, well, what is the difference between the good pathologist and the not so good pathologist? The answer was that the good pathologists make fewer mistakes. So <laughs> yeah. that means that all of us make mistakes. It is, it, it is, if you think that you don't make mistakes, probably you have not practiced long enough or you don't see enough cases or you don't sign cases at all. But I think we are bound to make the errors. Hopefully the mistakes are you miss by a millimeter and not by a mile. That's probably the way, or probably the error can be reversed without harm to, to anyone. But that's the probably brings this whole issue of recognizing entities in unusual locations. And that I think makes a, the overall knowledge of the individual to be an overall good surgical pathologist. And that is probably. There are no shortcuts for that, I, I, I don't think. I believe that is the more you see, the more general surgical pathology you see, the more you're going to, to know. It's like a pilot. The more hours they fly, the more they can manipulate that plane up and down. For us, the more hours we spend at the scope, they are the more likely, the more you will feel comfortable with unusual histologies in unusual anatomical locations. So. That's what I, how I, I, I view the practice of pathology in general. And going back to the initial question of challenging cases, a challenging case, it can be at the scope of a junior pathologist, a fellow, or it can be at the professorial level, a super, super specialized individual. So I don't think that the challenging case is bound to happen only to the junior people or to the fellow. I think it happens to all of us. It is just that probably the most experienced pathologist will find a way around that or will delay the case to do other, other studies to feel comfortable. Because if you are in that position at the professorial level and you are the expert you have no way to go. <laughs> you have no place to send the case. I mean, it is you. I mean, these days you can scan the case and share it with another experienced pathologist, but, but it still is it's unusual that that happened. But challenging cases and unusual cases, you know, all of us, I mean, it's, it's just a matter of time. I have a question that you've, you've brought it up a few times, and I kind of want to ask you to delve a little bit deeper into it. You've mentioned like having a bias, right? Like you get, you're presented with the case, you read the history. It's a seven-year-old little girl with X tumor and X spot. Here's the cells. You've already got a diagnosis half formed in your mind. How do you fight against that bias whenever what you're seeing under the scope doesn't match what you think it is? Well, I think the bias is good to have it. Okay. To some extent, I think I think we all should know what we are likely to expect. If it is a 14-year-old and has a plural or in the chest wall tumor mass, I, I am already thinking that probably the likely diagnosis is one of those small round cell sarcomas. Now, that is what I get when I, my initial impression when I am given the history or the anatomical location. But when I put this slide on the stage at the microscope, then immediately I realized two things. Yes, that's the likely diagnosis or not, I'm way off. Okay. Now, if I am way off because of the morphology of it, it shows me that there's something else, then I have to work the case up differently, obviously. But I think it is good to go with certain bias at the, at the scope thinking, I believe that I'm going to get this. So the way that I, I approach this, and right or wrong, and I'm not saying that what I do is wrong, 
likely I get this light, glass of light, and put out the scope. Of any case, if I don't know in the next 10 to 15 seconds, likely I will need some help doing immunostains or something else. And this is the time. Most of the time, when I put this slide, the scope, I have a fairly decent idea what it is. If I cannot come up in 15 seconds, no more than 20 seconds, then I, I will need some help. And if with the help I still don't know, then I probably will spend the next 20 years and not, not knowing if I don't show the case to somebody else. So now it is the time to share the case with with that individual probably who has seen more or to share with the case with somebody else. But I have always believed that a pathologist knows fairly quickly. When you put the, that glass slide on the stage of the scope, you know what you are seeing. And then I don't, the thing is we don't, we don't take a test in which we go point by point how we address. If, if so, if you ask me, okay, what is the mental process? Put this slide there. The first thing is, is it benign or malignant? Okay. Okay, I put it in one of these categories. If it is malignant, what type? Okay, do I need immunohistochemistry? Can I classify this? I know what it is. I just need the support from the ancillary stories. Or I don't know, and I need to do a battery just to put it in certain context. If it is benign, what type of benign? Is it reactive, infectious, or is it benign tumoral lesion? But I think that we make that a split fairly quickly in the mental process. I don't think that it takes, if it takes a minute, I think it is a little bit longer. I, I think most of us probably know fairly quickly where the split is going to be. And then we, we work the case up. But, but I think the bias that we get is, is good. The problem is when you have the bias and you cannot get out of your bias. And you cannot get out of your bias because you probably are misevaluating. You think that it has to be that particular tumor. And worse, the mistake that one is going to make is I am going to work the case only thinking about this condition because it has to be because it is a child that is 14 years old and his height is 5'10 and has blue eyes and has blonde hair and fits everything. That is the danger, okay? And one needs to get out of that bias very quickly if, if the histology doesn't fit. But I think a lot of people, unfortunately, I have known people who really think along those ways that a diagnostic line has to fit the gender, the height, the color, the blue eyes, fitness of the individual, and it doesn't. It doesn't. The important thing is to recognize the tumor and make an unbiased diagnosis and hopefully a correct one. So it's a balance to know what is likely in the location, but then not to close yourself off so much correct. that you get stuck. Correct. Correct. Because otherwise, then, then you have only one track mind and you will not be able to, to get out of this. And, and that happens often. It has to be this. It has to be this. And then you close yourself to think about, if one is thinking along those lines, probably give yourself, go to sleep and probably the pillow <laughs> will give you the answer the next day. Look, look at the case in a different way. I yeah, was and like you that, before, with stains, uh, you can, the stains can come out and you can convince yourself like your pleuropulmonary blastoma right. versus endometriosis, the stains continue you down that road of bias, that confirmation bias, where it's like, I want it to be this, therefore this pattern obviously means it's this, right? Correct, correct. Yeah, I, I kind of call sleeping on it, like letting the lizard brain do its work. You know, it's like you already kind of know, but your subconscious has to kind of tell your conscious mind about it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And also, keep in mind, so it, you can ask me or ask any pathologist a different question, not necessarily about the challenging case, what is the most difficult diagnosis that you make? And, and I have been asked, what is the most difficult diagnosis? And my answer has almost always been the same. The most difficult diagnosis is the one that you say is benign. Mm. It's not the one that you said malignant. Okay? The malignant one, you are going to get your feedback 
fairly quickly. The one that you call benign, or you said lomparenchyma, negative for tumor. Okay, so those are the cases that sometimes I go back and think about it and say, hmm, I called today, I have like three or four cases that I didn't find anything. Those are the complicated cases because thoracic biopsies, contrary to for instance, the skin biopsies, you know, you get the punch biopsy and it is accessible. Thoracic biopsies are not common. Thoracic biopsies, somebody did a biopsy because of an imaging that probably shows something. There must be a, a reason why a thoracic biopsy is taken. So for me to say negative for tumor or there is nothing here, that I find the, probably the most difficult because I am always thinking, did I miss something? Is there something there? Did I cut enough into the block? That I have always identified as probably the most difficult diagnosis, the one in which I cannot see anything in that biopsy. Always thinking, did I miss something in there? Yeah, because, and if you think about QA, you know, if you're doing review of malignant cases, if you have to get a second sign off on a new malignancy, it's rare that a QA program has like reviewing all the negatives. You might do a 10% review or whatever, the, but it's those negative cases that exactly. can be really sneaky and dangerous, right? Just to give you, just to give you a follow-up in, in how often you see cases that you think it has to be these. So I saw a case, mediastinal biopsy, and looked like a neuroendocrine tumor. It was positive for keratin, chromogranin, synaptophysin, well, so it's, it's a neuroendocrine neoplasm in, you know, in the mediastinum. And I finalized the case. There, after a period of time, several weeks, there was another biopsy. And I said, what are they doing another biopsy? Did the same stains, same results. Keratin, synaptophysin, chromogranin positive. But this time, because this short period of time, I inquired why the need for another biopsy. And the answer was, it is unusual. The clinical setting is unusual. So when somebody gives you that, uh, all of a sudden I start having second thoughts. And I said, well, but I did keratin, chromogranin, synaptophysin is positive. So what else could this be? Fully not thinking, but then I, I show the case to someone else. And then the someone else said, well, why don't you do some molecular studies? And a little bit reluctantly, I say, okay, let's do the molecular studies. But the molecular studies reveal that it was an exoskeletal viewing sarcoma. It was a PNEP. Okay. So when I went back to evaluate the case, I said, how often do you see extra, or, you know, PNETs that are positive for keratin, chromogranin, synaptophysin. I think there are reported cases, but this is not very common. It was a small biopsy, but it's still twice I follow the same lines to think that it has to be this, everything fit histologically, clinically, up to that point until the clinician said, well, this doesn't fit clinically. We may be thinking of something else. And then you start evaluating the case differently. And, you know, you get surprised. But this is the danger. And, you know, some, some of us suffer from that danger, okay? We have seen a lot. We know it. And we do these things. And then you say, well, it fits. This is diagnosis. Clearly not the case. But those are unusual cases, but unusual cases that help you learn, help you grow, and to be careful. Not to, again, not to basically close you your mind about only one possibility, mainly in, in those areas. So you can have all sorts of different tumors. So we talked about uncommon diagnoses, more common diagnoses in the wrong place, like your endometriosis in the pleura. We talked about one of your favorites, Rosai Dorfman disease. I remember you teaching me about that and looking at that in an unknown conference. One of the first, I mean, really challenging cases I had when I first started as an attending, I remember was a breast mass in a child and it was Rosai Dorfman disease. And I thought, ah, thank you, Dr. Moran. Characteristic histiocytes, <laughs> plasma cells, everything's here. And that's what it was. And I remember explaining that going to the tumor board and the oncologist were saying, well, why isn't this lymphoma? Sort of a weird question that, right. you know, sometimes you get asked the weirdest questions, right, by the right. oncologist, like, because it's not. <laughs> but uh, anyway, <laughs> but I thought about you for, for that one as well. So, you know, what advice do you have out there for the practicing pathologist, how they, how to know when you don't know? I think that, first of all, we have to know 
our own weaknesses in our areas in which we have probably gained very little experience or no experience at all. But, but I think we have to be clear and honest about it. And, and, and I think all of us, doctors, MDs in general, have a hard time saying, I don't know. I think we, we like to come up with an answer because we are physicians after all. You know, and, 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 and the burden that we put on ourselves is too high. And I think that creates a problem. So, for instance, and, and, and I'll attack this in a different way. If you give me a medical kidney biopsy, I will tell you, listen, <laughs> show it to somebody else. I know nothing of it. Okay. Nothing of it. If you give me a. I'm not a the kidney biopsy, guy. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> that's right. If you, if you give me a liver biopsy, a neoplastic, I will tell you my knowledge is so minimal that I can tell you that there is no tumor here, but that's about it. Then for something better, you have to show it to somebody else. So th those are very clear lines that I have drawn in which I say, I don't know anything about this. All my knowledge is minimal. So I immediately, when people wanted to show me things along those lines, I said, no, no, show it to somebody else. I don't even see the cases. Now, there are some areas in which I believe, even in our own specialty, that are a little bit complicated, that you, you need to put it together with more information that you have to know. No neoplastic lung, okay? And I'm probably referring to the interstitial, the fibrotic interstitial diseases. Because when, there are some non-neoplastic that are the histiocytic lesions. Those, you can make sense of it. You have seen enough. You develop the experience. But then you have another group, this interstitial lung disease, in which you need a lot more in clinical information, imaging information. That, that in itself probably is something that one has to pause a little bit and say, well, you know, I, I, I need some help here. For me, I haven't seen, I don't see enough here. Okay, I work in a cancer institution. So the number of cases that we have of interst fibrotic interstitial lung disease are just minimal here, okay? What we have, contrary to other places, is because of bone marrow transplant, we have those uh, lesions in, in the lung or the, 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 the pathology in the lung, but that's unusual. So in the community, I think in the community you have the group of oncology, the group of surgeons that probably attract a, the great majority of cases. First of all, you are going to have a mix of infectious, non-neoplastic, and neoplastic conditions. If we go on, on that, I believe that saying, okay, I haven't seen enough neuroendocrine tumors. I think it is important. And keep in mind, the neuroendocrine neoplasm of the lung or even in the gut, they are not that, that common. By far, adenocarcinomas and squamous are more common. So I think we have to know if in the community, what is what we see a lot? What is the most impact that I will have based on the pathology that, that I'm used to seeing in a community center? Probably you're looking at some 30, 40,000 surgical cases in a year. And if those 30,000 40,000 cases, you think that you get some 25% of neoplasia or 50%. So you're talking about 20,000 cases. Now, what are the most common? It's going to be gastrointestinal, probably endometrial, and you know the area of prostate, bladder. So those are the most common areas. But I believe that the, the way to approach this is to say, well, I haven't been exposed enough to that particular area, soft tissue bone. Even in the large medical centers, those, are, those tumors are not common. So if they are not common in the cancer center, they're going to be a whole lot less common out there, somewhere in there. Okay? So often the other problem is this. You know the diagnosis, but our reports have become so complicated these days that even though you know the, the diagnosis, how you want to report that? A small breast biopsy, all these biomarkers, 
So now you are dealing with something else. And I'll be honest with you, if you ask me right now to go to the community and do general surgical pathology, I probably will take me a while to really start functioning. And it is because I don't know how these reports are anymore. I know that my re- I spend more time probably reporting cases today than I'm actually at the microscope because I can finish a case at the microscope in a couple of minutes and it will take me many minutes in the in the computer to, to put it together. So I think the easiest way is I haven't been exposed to this pathology. Bones of tissue is an example of it, not common. And with so many different entities now, that is already a red flag. I'm not familiar with this. I will show it to a friend. I will show it to one of my colleagues. If I am in a group or if I'm not in a group, then I will have my consultant to send it somewhere else and get an answer. And hopefully then that will be a help or an aid that you can use for future cases. But I think it is that. I think when we, let me take even a step back into that. The training in pathology has changed dramatically now. Okay, And it is because the number of months that the, residents spend doing surgical pathology is more limited. I did training only in anatomical pathology. I never did clinical pathology. So all my training was strictly surgical anatomical pathology. And then I did a fellowship. And then I went to places that have a high volume of cases. So that created an experience that is, now now that I see it, was a, a luxury type of experience. But not everyone follows that. I mean, if you train in a small medical center and then you move to a small practice, then, yeah, the the shortcomings are that you are not going to be exposed. And after you have spent, you know, three, five years in that small practice, then you are not going to be skillful with the unusual pathology. And unless you go to courses all the time, but even like that, it's, it's a little bit difficult is we learn pathology because we gain the experience at the scope, not because someone showed us a picture or we got a book and then, you know, yeah, you can learn like that a lot, but it's, it's a little, it takes a little bit longer. So to your question, I think identifying the areas in which we feel not only uncomfortable, but also we feel that we did not gain the experience. And I think that is very important because otherwise, then we will be at risk of errors in interpretation. And we try to avoid that as much as possible. We, we should. Yeah, absolutely. I will add to your non-neoplastic liver and your non-neoplastic kidney, I will add the placenta is also something yeah. that I don't, I don't want to look at. I don't know anything about it. I can tell you that it's a placenta. You know, so we all have those things that we kind of weren't exposed to, or even if you don't particularly like you're not interested in it or whatever, and knowing what you don't know is super important. Exactly, exactly. And again, you know, I don't even remember the last time that I saw one and probably one more than 25, 30 years ago. So that, that tells <laughs> you how much experience I have with that. So yeah, yeah, that that is or or cases that you see only, you know, a handful of cases in a year. That's the time to think very carefully. This is a case that I want to share with somebody else that has the experience or, or the knowledge. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the, that is that specimen is our patient, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah, what we try to do is to come with the best possible interpretation at the same time to be in a timely fashion. Years back with, with, during the golden years of the AFIP. I remember a senior pathologist at the AFIP made a statement because he said the AFIP takes too long in, in, in providing the answer. And I said, well, it doesn't matter how long we take. We give you the answer. But, but these days, you know, you cannot do that. You know, it has to be done in a timely fashion. So in, in there are many institutions, many individuals who are experts in, in different areas that can shed some very important light in, in, in this material. So it is time to share. If one feels uncomfortable, even if you have the experience, if you feel uncomfortable, this is time to share because you don't want to put yourself in at risk. 
Well, Dr. Moran, thank you so much for talking with us today. This time has flown by and it's just been such a pleasure to catch up with you and to have an entire conversation for almost an hour about surgical pathology and not even look at an image, <laughs> right? You probably thought I was crazy when I asked you to do a podcast. That's right. How am I going to talk about surgical pathology without even looking at one picture of histology? But we did it, right? Yeah. 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 That went by fast. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, once again, thank you so much for joining us. I want to tell our listeners to tell their colleagues about the podcast and don't forget to subscribe. And also don't forget, you can get your CME, CMLE for this podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website at www.ascp.org. <laughs>